The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. We're in a contest, not with China per se, but a contest with autocrats, autocratic governments around the world, as whether or not democracies can compete with them in the rapidly changing 21st century. So you've got G7 leaders touting consensus on climate, tax, infrastructure and vaccines, but face immediate criticism that the Cornwall summit is light on action as the world's top democracies look to a changing world order. The US remains an open country and it said to itself, other countries are advancing, we're going to do the same. The cracks showing over Brexit with the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying he'll do whatever it takes to protect the union. Whilst Canada's leader tells CNBC the Irish border was a key issue in his bilateral talks. Uh, Boris, that Canada was an integral part of the negotiation of the Good Friday agreements uh, many decades ago and we are uh, committed to trying to see a path forward that uh, works uh, in the spirit and uh, substance of those accords. Morning all. Well, as attention turns from the G7 to NATO, the Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has told CNBC in a first-on interview that China is not an enemy, but is a cause for concern. US President Joe Biden continues his overseas tour, preparing to meet with his Russian counterpart this week, where he may not receive the warmest of welcomes. We have a bilateral relationship that has deteriorated to its lowest point in recent years. It's the end of an era in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu's 12 years in charge draws to a close as Naftali Bennett is sworn in as Prime Minister, charged with healing a divided nation and leading a particularly diverse coalition. Very good morning, Karen. Good morning. Very good morning, everybody. Nice to have you with us. There is a, a touch of the morning after the night before feel about the programme this morning as we wrap together all those themes that have come out of the G7 meetings. And of course, we then move on to talk about uh, NATO and what happens next as President Biden moves on to talk about security and NATO. But let's talk about the weekend. G7 leaders called on China to respect human rights and fundamental freedoms at the conclusion of their meeting in Cornwall. In their final communique, the G7 referred to issues in Xinjiang and Hong Kong and called for a full independent investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, insisted that the group is not hostile towards Beijing, but said China must respect international rules. While G7 leaders found common ground on a range of issues from climate to the pandemic, a row erupted over Brexit. The French President Emmanuel Macron reportedly infuriated Prime Minister Boris Johnson 
over a comment regarding Northern Ireland as both the EU and the UK clash over the implementation of a protocol for the region. In his final press conference, Johnson said that effectively he would uh, safeguard the union, but uh, seemed to be a huge fight over sausages. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you want to get straight to the heart of the uh, British, I think sausages is the subject that you bring up because we've all got an opinion on sausages, Steve, don't we? But I think, you know, in terms of who got what they wanted at this meeting, it seems that President Biden will go away the most satisfied given that we have this coalition of opinions around the question of China and how to respond to the threat from China. Yeah, uh, good morning to both of you. And I, I was just having this exact conversation with Hadley and I always stand here at the end of one of these G meetings and I was saying to Hadley, I, I think it's my 13th or 14th, I, I've lost track really. And I'm normally stunningly underwhelmed, but I'm also aware of, of so-called taking the Kool-Aid, of reading the uh, communique, which uh, if anyone bothers to read it, it's actually quite interesting, 25 pages. Uh, there is a, a two-page summary for those of you who want lighter reading. Uh, I'm trying to work out, was there substance in it or was there not? And I've got to say, I, I, I think this is one of the better ones. Again, I don't want to go too effusive, and I know there has been criticism, there always will be criticism uh, about um, putting the meat on the bones of a lot of these things. But when you think about it, we have now got the skeletons of a global tax deal. That's no mean feat. We have got the best part of a billion, uh, I think it's actually 870 million vaccines to go to the developing world committed, uh, a vast amount of that by the end of this year, uh, a vast amount of it by the end of 22. You have, as you just said, uh, real teeth in the commentary against potential adversaries, the kind of commentary we haven't had for a very, very long time as well. I mean, to see that China mentioned uh, section 49, if you're interested, on page 19, uh, Xinjiang mentioned um, pro democracy rights uh, in the post-colonial, post-British era uh, in Hong Kong uh, mentioned as well. In fact, I'll, I'll read you the subject. Uphold the rules of base system international law in China. We will continue to consult on collective approaches and challenge non-market policies and practices as well. So really, I think China has helped actually frame and reinvigorate the G7 by being so aggressive and dismissive towards the G7. And of course, as we know, uh, the South Koreans were here, the uh, South Africans were here as well, uh, the Australians, uh, and the Indians virtually as well. So G7 plus other democracies as well. And of course, the EU represented by Charles Michel uh, and Ursula von der Leyen as well. So I think there was a lot more teeth in this one, partly because of how adversaries see it and partly because the president is back. And we'll come to that second part in a few moments time. Did the sausage wars and the Brexit row disrupt it? Well, I think especially for the UK media, there's no doubt about it. Um, it was one press conference where I, where I was getting a question into Monsieur Macron, where I, I'll tell you now, a couple of the local famed reporters from a couple of famed local channels were desperate to ask extra Brexit questions, but he'd already answered it. And I kind of thought, well, what more could you have on that one as well? But I'll come to that in a moment. But I did speak to um, Prime Minister Trudeau as well, actually. And I asked him a couple of things. Um, but one of the things I asked him about, well, his bilat uh, and how Brexit came up and how concerned Canada were about the situation. Let's listen in to Prime Minister Trudeau's answer. It's not something that came up in our discussions around the table. I know there were probably some bilateral conversations. From my perspective, I uh, reminded uh, Boris that Canada was an integral part of the negotiation of the Good Friday Agreements uh, many decades ago, and we are uh, committed to trying to see a path forward that uh, works uh, in the spirit and uh, substance of those accords. That was uh, the Prime Minister of Canada talking to CNBC about uh, how much of a distraction or not the whole Brexit simmering row was as well. 
I also got pretty lucky. I've got to be honest with you. There were five questions into Macron. Four of them were French reporters out of the pool. The other one was me. And he'd already answered, as I say, about the sausage wars. We can come to that a little bit later on as well. But I asked the question that you, I, Karen, uh, many people have been asking for a very long time. I think even Paul Donovan would probably question as well. Is What is the point of G7? Has it been reinvigorated? Uh, does it see a purpose going forward? Has actually the change of presidency changed thing? And are we at the whim of the US electoral cycle? Because let's face it, he, he mentioned so many times, oh, four last years, we didn't have the people in place to move forward coherently. So, so I asked him, are we at the whim of the US electoral cycle? This is his answer. What's true is that when a partner as structural as the US decides to skew away from managing the global public good or from a shared understanding of so many topics, it's very difficult to move forward. Now, does this mean that nothing gets decided without the US choosing not to be a part of the agenda? No. And I think we've shown that over the past four years, we've strengthened the European capacity for cooperation. For me, this is very important. It's an essential achievement over the past four years. The EU has shown over this time that it's a political entity and not just an economic one. As uh, President Macron speaking to me yesterday. So, look, I, I think you have to put this in context as well. The, the two meetings beforehand, we didn't have a face to face last year, of course, because of COVID. The one in Biarritz that I was at down in the south of France and the one before that, which was pretty much a disaster for the Canadian presidency in Ottawa as well. They were pretty awful meetings with limp uh, communiques at the end of it. This time around, we've got huge agreements on tax. They, they, they seem to have a focus on who they are at the G7 and what they represent. And, and dare I say, it, who the adversaries are as well. And, and again, Section 50 talking about Russia, calling on them to stop their destabilizing behavior and malign uh, activities as well. Very firm comments there against Russia. Pretty firm stuff, as you've mentioned as well, against China in Section 49 as well. Plus, you've got the COVID stuff. Plus, you've got the 12 trillion they're talking about that's already been put in place as well. Plus, you've got Biden, who's putting G7 amidst a broader picture with the NATO, the EU summit as well, and then his meeting in Geneva at the tail end of his trip uh, with Mr. Putin as well. So I would, by and large, say... I don't, I don't want to be mealy-mouthed about this, but it was better than most, Jeff and Karen, better than most. Steve, bear with us. Let's bring Paul Donovan into the conversation. You referenced him, and I know he was listening to what you had to say, so no doubt he'll have some opinions. Paul is Chief Economist at UBS Global Wealth Management. Good morning to you, Paul. Obviously, we are scanning the G7 statement and the warming up of hostilities against China for indications as how that's likely to impact growth rates or market sentiment. Clearly, at this point, it would seem that this increase in verbal tension, at least with China, does risk growth rates and it implies further pressure on supply chains, potentially. Well, I mean, I think to be honest, the G7 is saying what's already been said. I mean, there wasn't anything particularly new. It was just said in a different format you know, by the seaside this time rather than in various capitals around the world. So I'm not sure that there's a there's a dramatic shift. And there is, of course, a difference in the language. Um, I think uh, US President Biden was being far more aggressive uh, in the approach towards China than, say, we were hearing from Macron or from the European leaders. So there is, you know, beneath the surface, clearly still some kind of division. With regards to uh, the medium-term economic outlook, I mean, I think, to be honest, the, the, the approach of the G7, that kind of thing, 
isn't going to make much of a difference. We've got bigger forces at work in the global economy, uh, shifting supply chains, localization. Um, what we're seeing already start to emerge in the aftermath of the pandemic as the fourth industrial revolution really takes hold. Yet those things are going to be shaping global trade, which I think over time is going to diminish in importance. Uh, we're going to be seeing uh, shifting taxation structures already. That was already agreed by the finance ministers, not by the heads of government, of course. So we're already moving towards a new way of doing things. The G7 may be you know, on the sidelines, waving pom-poms and cheering it on, but we're already seeing these economic shifts come through. Let me beg to differ for a moment, because I think the anti-foreign sanctions law that was passed last week by the Chinese administration is an indication that the Chinese are responding now to what they see as increasing pressure on them from Washington and other countries in this so-called small circle, as they described it. And this, this, uh, this law allows countermeasures against foreign companies, which include refusal to issue visas, denial of entry, deportation, sealing, seizing and freezing property of individuals and businesses. Increasingly, this suggests that the international business community is going to have to decide whether it wants to do business in China, with China or with the West. I think that has massive implications potentially for global growth. Well, that's the sort of sanction that any government applies. I mean, the United States applies those sort of sanctions. Uh, it's applied against Iran as early as 1979. It's you know, applied it against Russian citizens. You know, this is what happens. If you're going to apply sanctions, you do seize property. You do deny visas. That's exactly what global sanctions are all about. So I'm not sure that there's anything particularly new there. And I don't think it's quite so straightforward as a binary choice. It's more about how you want to position your supply chains um, and perhaps more importantly, the economics of your supply chains, because the economics of outsourcing have shifted. It's not so uh, attractive to be outsourcing production now as it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, China won massively in the third industrial revolution with a model which deliberately sought to attract outsourcing, did a fantastic job of doing that. But that model is now turned on its head in the fourth industrial revolution. I'm not sure that this continues anyway. Uh, so it's not a, a binary black and white choice, I think, between do we do business with China or do we do business outside of China? Uh, I think it's more about changing the, the nature of the relationship and China's role in the fourth industrial revolution, which is going to be shifting. Paul, after a few years of hearing about America first and the signalling from President Trump, there was a distinct shift over the weekend from President Biden about the level of international cooperation, particularly when it came to the Belt and Road Initiative that China has and whether there's another role for some of these global players in funding economies. I mean, this is a debate that we've had a few years back around various different development banks and who should be providing the financing. Did you read anything between this about what some of the major economies could do in developing parts of the world? Well, we've got a, a pledge to do more to help infrastructure spending and no details uh, and no money. Um, but apart from that, yes, we're fine. You know, we're, we're making a statement on this. Again, some of the problems here are uh, about the politics versus the economics of this. The politics, I think, is quite clear. It's, it's you know, gestures of, of goodwill and it's sort of vaguely reminiscent of the the. the bid to woo the non-aligned states in the Cold War, perhaps to some extent, with big gesture uh, infrastructure projects. The economics of this 
isn't so clear cut. I mean, one of the problems that we often find, uh, particularly in times of structural upheaval, is government policy is, is always building the infrastructure for the past, not the infrastructure for the future. So getting that shift right very rarely happens. So the economics of this, I'm, I'm less enamored of. Um, the, the politics, I think, is reminiscent of, of some of the Cold War politics, but we don't have any details. We don't know what they're going to do. And the coordination here seems to me to be rather flimsy. It's a, a bold statement of intent rather than actual action. Yeah, and I hear you, Paul, and I hear your cynicism as well. And like, you know better than anyone how prickly it can be uh, dealing with China as well. But I mean, in the 1930s, there is no one point you can turn around and say, this was the moment when a Western alliance was created. This was the moment uh, when policy in the Western nations hardened against the Axis or against uh, what was going on in Nazi Germany. So I'm not saying that that's the comparison. I am just saying that, that you can't say one moment or one organisation was responsible for a change in policy. And it's the same uh, in the Cold War. Uh, in, in, in the 50s and 60s, there was no one moment. You could say that was the moment when the Western alliance uh, became more aggressive towards players. Well, and I, I kind of feel that it's part of a process as well. So whilst I share your, your longer-term cynicism about the G7, uh, I, I think broad, you have to look at it in the broad. I mean, AE, you've got the, the other powers were brought in. Scott Morrison was brought in. Moon Jae-in was brought in. Cyril Ramaphosa uh, and, and the Indians virtually as well. You've got the 27 of the EU. So it's not just the seven of the G7 as well. And I can't help thinking that they are seemingly toughening their language and finding uh, a broader alliance here? Well, I, I don't think we're getting that much. I think you know, I, I, I hear you're saying you know, it's, it's better than it's been over the last four years. Well, yes, obviously it has. Uh, but I did get the sense, Steve, that you're, you're you know, playing up, bigging up the G7 is, is more to ensure future junkets for you to be able to go down and report in exotic locations uh, rather than actual real substance. I mean, at the end of the day, most of the the real substance, the stuff like the tax deal, that wasn't done here. That was done beforehand. And it's going to be torn apart in the OECD anyway. Um, We've got further rounds to go. And and, the Irish are kicking up a fuss about losing their tax haven status and so on and so forth. So there's enormous amounts of stuff going on at a multilateral level. I'm not denying that. I just think this fixation on the G7 as producing fantastic results all the time, it's actually not helpful. And the markets have rather given up on this. I mean, the markets... I hear you, Paul. But it... Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Paul, that, that's a G7 initiative, that tax. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I, I agree that it's literally just the, the, the signing of the paper here. And again, future junkets. I, I'm about 100 miles from you, so you've got to be careful on my way back. I'll come and see you. Uh, and the next one's in Germany, by the way, so uh, uh, which might be less exotic. But my point is, it was a G7 initiative that got that minimum tax. It was Janet Yellen coming to the table in a G7 format with the EU and saying, this is our premise for going towards the talks with the G20 and then taking it towards the OECD. You've got to start somewhere on these things. And again, again, future junkets or not, I, I could do without being six days away from home, Paul. I, I think we can over-exaggerate that as well. The fact of the matter is that was a G7 initiative and it's done. And on the COVAX stuff as well, they have pushed each other to more uh, vaccinations uh, for uh, the developing world and for the African Union. And they have given a much bigger number as well. That's a G7 initiative. Again, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid here. I can see where the problems are. I can see where the flim-flam is. I've read enough of these statements like you uh, to be utterly, you know, um, <sighs> uninspired by some of these statements. But there is a lot happening and it has to start somewhere before you take it to a broader grouping, Paul. Well, I think a lot of what's happened has been about uh, individual leadership. So I, I would disagree. I don't think this 
tax initiative was a G7 initiative. I think it's it's a US-led initiative building on the, the breakdown of the OECD tax talks from earlier on, but using that as a foundation. And then it's a US-led initiative. You know, how they get to back to the OECD is is pretty academic as far as I'm concerned. And the fact that we've already got disagreements and carve-outs, the fact that the EU can't agree amongst itself is, is I think, symptomatic of the huge challenges ahead regardless of the G7. So I think that we've, we've got to be very careful. The problem with these sort of special events is in the past, we had all this enthusiasm built up around them, particularly in the markets. And the number of times I hear, well, what about Plaza? What about Louvre? That was a generation ago, for crying out loud, uh, and in a very, very different world environment. And since then, you know, we haven't had the same sort of direct big impact. We've had lots of vague statements of what would be desirable and papering over the cracks as, as best we can, which is, again, what's happened here. The cracks may not be so deep this time because of the change of leadership in the United States and the fact that the US is playing a more active role, but the cracks are still there. Paul, we're going to wrap it up with you, but thanks so much for joining us. Good to have you on board once again. Paul Donovan, Chief Economist at UBS Global Wealth Management. Still to come on the programme this morning, we have a first on CNBC interview with the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg ahead of a summit in Brussels. Don't miss that after the break. We'll see you in just a moment. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. We have a bilateral relationship that has deteriorated to its lowest point in recent years. I believe that former U.S. President Mr. Trump is an extraordinary individual, talented individual, otherwise he would not have become U.S. President. He's a colorful individual. You may like him or not, and but he didn't come from the U.S. establishment. He had not been part of big-time politics before, and some like it, some don't like it, but that is a fact. President Biden, of course, is radically different from Trump because President Biden is a career man. He has spent virtually his entire adulthood in politics. Just think of the number of years he spent in the Senate. A different kind of person. And it is my great hope that, yes, there are some advantages, some disadvantages, but there will not be any impulse-based movements on behalf of the sitting U.S. president. That was, of course, the Russian President Vladimir Putin in the exclusive conversation with NBC News' Keir Simmons where he warned of frayed ties with the United States. U.S. President Joe Biden has arrived in Brussels for a two-day summit with his NATO partners. The visit is the latest stop on Biden's first foreign trip since taking office and will focus on revitalizing U.S.-EU ties, as well as tackling threats from China and Russia. Hadley joins us with more after her first uh, on CNBC interview with the NATO Secretary General. Uh, Hadley, well, I already watched uh, quite a lot of your interview in earlier programming here, and I think you really got him to open up about 
the perceived threat from China and ultimately what needs to happen now with the United States, because it does feel that we are in a new ball game here. Absolutely. And it takes you really back, doesn't it, to a few years ago when we had that summit between uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and at that time, U.S. President Donald Trump. It was in Helsinki. And you'll remember I was at that summit. I was covering that. They entered a meeting where no notes were taken. And there were a lot of questions about whether the U.S. president had given a free pass to Vladimir Putin. So all eyes will be on that summit with U.S. President Joe Biden in Geneva. A lot of questions being raised about what the U.S.'s response is going to be to what they consider Russia's malign activity. Um, But speaking of the NATO summit over the next couple of days, there are a lot of questions about the NATO alliance as well. Over the last few years, you and I have talked about this so many times, Jeff, about the future of NATO. Is it essentially, you know, a defunct organization? Is there going to be a European defense force that's really going to take the mantle of NATO on? They're going to be talking about Russia. They're going to be talking about China. They'll talk also about Afghanistan. One key point that I got from the secretary general was essentially, you know, there's been a lot of discomfort amongst NATO members about the fact that the United States decided to pull troops out by September. And they didn't necessarily talk about that with their European or NATO allies there. So that raised and ruffled some feathers, if you will. No doubt they'll be talking about that. But when it comes to Russia, you've got to remember that this is a conversation that's been ongoing all of this ahead of this uh, meeting uh, with the presidents in Geneva. Interesting headlines coming out of Russia over the last 24 to 48 hours. Apparently, the defense minister has said that they're going to involve themselves with 20 new military units, and that's to counter NATO's activity on uh, their western border. He's referencing, of course, the military exercises that we've seen there. NATO troops are apparently combat ready for the first time in history. I asked the secretary general about that and how the transatlantic alliance plans to counter Russia. Listen in. NATO's approach to Russia is based on what we call a dual track approach, uh, defense and dialogue. Um, uh, We have to be strong, we have to be uh, predictable, uh, and that's exactly what we do when we now have implemented the biggest reinforcement of collective defense since the end of the Cold War, and will continue to strengthen our uh, collective defense with high readiness, more troops, uh, and increased uh, uh, investment in our uh, defense. Um, uh, when it comes to land-based uh, nuclear uh, uh, missiles, it has been a consistent uh, position uh, uh, of NATO over several years since the demise of the INF Treaty that we are uh, not uh, planning to deploy uh, new land-based nuclear-capable missiles. But we will make sure that we are responding to new uh, Russian uh, uh, military build-ups, including with nuclear uh, weapons. and. Uh, uh, we are doing that in many different ways, including by strengthening our air and missile defense, increasing the readiness of our forces, and also by, of course, pursuing uh, arms control. Uh, and, uh, and that's part of the dialogue track uh, with uh, Russia. We were at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. I spoke with the central bank governor. I spoke with a lot of business leaders as well as policymakers there. It was an interesting tone. Essentially, you know, they're projecting 3 to 4% growth GDP-wise over the next year or so. They've also essentially, you know, started the process of de-dollarizing their reserves at the central bank. And there seems to be a big push, frankly, um, for this digital currency that would be backed by the central bank to get underway. That prototype's due by the end of the year. It seems as if U.S. economic sanctions on Russia are becoming less effective than they once were. As a military man and as someone who stands on the front lines um, when it comes to dealing with Russia's foreign policy, do you still believe that sanctions are the best weapon to use when it comes to Russia's bad behavior? 
Sanctions are uh, important. Uh, we have, uh, especially since the uh, uh, aggressive actions of uh, Russia against uh, uh, Ukraine in 2014, the uh, legal annexation of Crimea, since then we have uh, responded in many different ways uh, to uh, the aggressive actions of Russia. Partly by imposing sanctions, uh, sanctions uh, uh, should continue and are important, but also by providing more to support to, to close partners as Ukraine and Georgia. And then perhaps the most important thing we have done is that for the first time in NATO's history, we have combat-ready troops in the eastern part of the alliance, uh, uh, new battle groups uh, deployed to the Baltic countries and Poland. Uh, we have tripled the size of the NATO readiness force. Uh, and after years of cutting defense budgets, all allies are now in investing more. So we are not going to mirror what Russia does, uh, but we will respond in a very firm and clear way uh, with a, co a wide combination of different uh, uh, tools, as we have demonstrated over the last years. Do you think then that economic sanctions continue to be a part of that in terms of Absolutely. the response? Absolutely. Economic sanctions continues to be a part of that, but it's one of uh, uh, several tools uh, 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 that NATO allies are uh, using. Uh, so, so uh, we need both uh, uh, increased readiness, uh, military presence in the eastern part of the alliance. No one was actually discussing or, 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 or planning for any NATO deployment uh, in the Baltic countries and Poland before Russia illegally annexed uh, Crimea in 2014. Since then, we have seen a significant uh, strengthening of our collective defense in a defensive but very clear and firm way. And we will continue to make important decisions at our summit uh, on Monday, where allies will agree how to further strengthen uh, our deterrence and defense, including by increasing readiness and, uh, and also investing in technology and making sure that we sharpen our technological edge and also um, strengthen our cyber defenses, which has proven extremely important as we see uh, Russia trying to use uh, cyber and cyber attacks uh, to undermine uh, trust in our democratic institution and middle, uh, institutions and meddle in our political processes. So no doubt the Kremlin's watching quite closely what's happening in Brussels over the next couple of days, but also, of course, what's happening in Beijing. I mean, what they're thinking about all of this as well. They're going to be watching that meeting between Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden. They're going to be watching the communiques and, and, and perhaps what the president has promised will be a robust response to Russia. Um, one of the other questions, of course, is about the transatlantic alliance itself, guys, and the spending, that old chestnut about whether people are making up that 2% of GDP that um, President Trump again and again called out NATO for that. And, uh, you know, even in these interviews over the last couple of years with the Secretary General, he's actually been quite pleased with uh, the moves by these NATO countries to finally start, you know, ponying up and making their fair share or paying their fair share. So let's see what happens over the next couple of days in terms of that as well, guys. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.